0: Welcome to Monday Morning Murder in the News with Alyssa Carroll. Good morning, my most precious heathens, and happy Murder in the News Monday that I've been pretty good about releasing every single Monday morning because the rest of the regular news, as you well know, is just hot, scary garbage, and you know you'd rather be hearing me and my bullshit anyway, right? So, I've scoured the internet along with a listener, Jessica, Sup, girl? And we have found the headlines so that you don't have to. Happy commuting. And here we go. So, darlings, our very first article comes from Fox 26 News. The title reads, Cold Case, DNA Links Human Skull Found in 1991 to Case Involving Missing 4-Year-Old Boy. The picture on the article is of a skull, like a pretty aged skull. This comes out of Washington. So DNA has linked a human skull that was found along a hiking trail in California more than 30 years ago to a cold case involving a missing four-year-old boy, according to authorities. The San Bernardino County Sheriff's Department on Thursday said a murder investigation from 1991 has now been reignited. The department identified the child as Derek Burton. In a news release, the sheriff's office said a hunter discovered the skull without teeth or mandible in Mentone on October 27, 1991. A homicide investigation was launched and authorities searched the area. Quote, a torn plastic trash bag with decomposition odor and child's clothing was located and kept for evidence, according to the release. Quote, the remains could not be identified and no further leads were discovered at the time. End quote. About a week later, a coroner determined the skull belonged to a child between four and eight years old. The cause of death was undetermined, the release noted. No other leads were available, and the case went cold. But in 2022, DNA from the skull was sent to Othram, Inc., a DNA sequencing and genomics laboratory. In February 2023, Othram revealed distant genetic relatives to the decedent located in Houston, Texas, The San Bernardino County Sheriff's Department Homicide Detail contacted the genetic relatives and received consent for their DNA for further testing, the release noted, adding that Patricia Clark was identified as the child's mother. Authorities contacted Clark and learned she reported the boy missing in 91, but he was never found. Quote, Clark's DNA was obtained and sent to FTDNA, which revealed Clark was a 100% parental match to the human remains of the child doe, now known to be Derek Burton, the release noted. So the sheriff's office is asking anyone who has information about this case to contact them at 909-890-4904. To remain anonymous, call the WE-TIP at 800-78-CRIME. So, wow, well, I'm just glad that the mother at least has some kind of closure, as absolutely devastating as that would be, right? So, our next article comes from InsideEdition.com. The title reads, Brian Koberger Murder Defense, DNA from Three Men, Mystery Glove Found at Crime Scene, Says Lawyer. So, Koberger and his lawyer filed this objection because they are seeking a detailed breakdown of how genetic genealogy was utilized to help the FBI initially identify Koberger as a person of interest in the case. Are you kidding me? So, Brian Koberger and his defense team are giving a glimpse into the suspected University of Idaho killer's defense in a new court filing. Investigators found DNA from three men at the murder scene, writes defense attorney J. Weston Logsdon, in an objection to the state's motion for a protective order obtained by Inside Edition. Logsdon says that investigators found the DNA from two men inside the house and a third outside the residence on a glove. None of this DNA matches that of Brian Koberger, says Logston, noting that the DNA was never run through CODIS, which is Combined DNA Index System, in hopes of finding a direct match. Koberger and his lawyer filed this objection because they are seeking a detailed breakdown of how genetic genealogy was utilized to help the FBI initially identify Koberger as a person of interest in the case. The state is arguing that, you know, since DNA from a buccal swab provided by the suspect matched the DNA found on a knife sheath at the scene, the genetic genealogy results will play no role in the upcoming trial and are inconsequential to proving the suspect's guilt or innocence. So in response, Koberger and his lawyers outline what they believe to be the perceived holes in the case starting with the DNA. The presence of DNA from other men at or near the crime scene could explain why it took six weeks to arrest Koberger. Quote, While this was ongoing, police were investigating many various possible suspects. Many of them provided DNA. Logden writes quote, At least one had his DNA surreptitiously taken from discarded cigarettes. Many also had their phones taken and downloaded. End quote. So, the filing also claims that there is a total lack of DNA evidence from the victims in Mr. Koberger's apartment, office, home, or vehicle. Another piece of evidence that the defense believes is lacking is the identification of the suspect's car. The probable cause affidavit references a white sedan, but makes no mention of make or model. Logston says there is only one sighting of a vehicle that is certainly a Hyundai Elantra. Koberger owned and drove a 2016 Elantra. Quote, precisely how the police came to believe the car was an Elantra is still unknown, writes Logston. A report from an analyst for the FBI dated March 21st of 23 shows the analyst heavily relying on video of car heading in the wrong direction and at the wrong time on Ridge Road. End quote. So it also seems that, as Koberger seeks to delay providing the defense with his alibi, prosecutors may similarly be stalling when it comes to providing the defense with a motive, if they have even determined one at this time. Lagston writes that, as of his filing the objection, prosecutors have provided the defense with no evidence of a, quote, connection between Mr. Koberger and the victims, end quote. There is one connection, according to prosecutors, who claim in their motion for a protective order that the DNA on the knife sheath found near two of the victims is a direct match to Koberger's DNA. So in their initial motion seeking a protective order, prosecutors write about the discovery of the knife sheath containing a trace amount of DNA that they claim is a match to that of Koberger. Quote, law enforcement found a K-bar knife sheath on the bed next to the bodies of Madison and Kaylee. the motion states. The sheath was face down and partially under both Madison's body and the comforter on the bed. End quote. The objection filed by Logsdon argues that the entire case is built upon this genetic genealogy that led the FBI to identify Koberger as a suspect and claims that withholding this information is akin to hiding the root of the murder investigation. (sighs) Logston writes about his client, quote, A massive investigation came to focus on him and him alone. The state appears to be trying to hide its original domino, such that he cannot discover why. Mr. Koberger has right to discover and question the investigation that led to him, End quote. And he does. The case has received national attention ever since the bodies of four University of Idaho students were found dead in a house just off the school's Moscow campus in November. So... And then the the article goes on to talk about how they got his DNA and so on and so forth. But here are my questions, guys. Okay, so bear with me. Let's discuss this, okay? So they found DNA on the sheath that goes with the knife that killed these people. Well, I guess I don't know if they found the knife or not, but his DNA was in the sheath touching the body. Why would his DNA be there? His DNA is there. That would automatically make him a suspect. Is he a fucking idiot or what? If there are two or three or 20 other male DNA profiles on that property, I mean, there were female roommates there that had boyfriends and had friends over. I mean, this was a college environment. Why would they not have males hanging out with them? Is is there something, I mean, are they trying to imply that these girls were not allowed to have male friends? And this is the kind of shit that pisses me off. I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop. Let's go on to the next one. So for the next one, it's about Corey Richens. So if you guys listened to the podcast that I made about Corey Richens, she's the child's author, even though she didn't even write the book about how to help your kids deal with grief if they lose a loved one or a parent, even though she allegedly, supposedly murdered her husband, right? Okay. So and, you know, we saw her in these hearings and she's, you know, dotting her eyes, which don't look to have tears in them in the, fir- in the first place. But I digress yet again. From Inside Edition, title reads, Corey Richin's murder trial. Grief author knew death paid millions more than divorce, says late husband's family. Duh. Quote, she stood to gain much more from his death than from a divorce, family spokesperson Greg Scordis tells Inside Edition. I am talking in the nature of millions of dollars. So the wife accused of murdering her husband and then writing a children's book about grief knew that she stood to make more money as a widow than a divorcee, says a spokesperson for her husband's family. Corey Richens is suing the estate of her late husband, Eric, seeking the proceeds from his recently sold business and half the value of their marital home. Her husband's family is now speaking out about this lawsuit through spokesperson Greg Skortis. Quote, she stood to gain much more from his death than from a divorce. I am talking in the nature of millions of dollars, end quote. He also says that Richens needed the money, quote, she certainly had some financial reasons for him to die. She was in dire financial straits on a number of fronts, end quote. And of course, we know that we we learned about that in the podcast. So he added she stood to gain enough through life insurance proceeds to get her out of that hole, end quote. So, Scortis also says that no one in the family has changed their opinion about what happened, believing that Richens killed her husband after trying to poison him on at least one other occasion. Quote, there is no emotion she showed in court, no comments she has made, that has dissuaded the family from feeling that she is responsible for his death, Scortis said. Richens says in a complaint obtained by Inside Edition Digital that she is, quote, entitled to a money judgment against the estate in an amount to be proven at trial, but which is not less than $300,000 and which is believed to be well in excess of $2,000,000. That number is based on her stake in Richens and Eric Richens's marital home. Richens is also seeking an additional $2 million that the estate is holding from the sale of her husband's masonry business. Richens filed her lawsuit earlier this month in Summit County, Utah, against her sister-in-law, Katie Richens Benson, in her capacity as the representative of Eric's estate. What I told you in the podcast that he, he named one of his sisters the executor of his estate before he died. So, the 46 page complaint states that attempts by Richens to assert ownership of her late husband's business, their marital home, or his personal property have all been denied by Richens Benson, the sister who is in control. In each instance, Richens Benson claims that the estate is the sole owner according to the complaint. So, Richens argues that that is not the case, and points to the prenuptial agreement as proof that she is entitled to the proceeds from the sale of Eric's business. Quote, "'Wife shall have no right or claim to the business, including its value, its assets, and its accounts receivable, whether existing at the time of marriage or to come into existence after the party's marriage, except that if husband should die prior to wife, while the two are lawfully married.' Husband's partnership interest in said business shall transfer to the wife, reads the prenuptial agreement signed by both parties. Now, I would assume, this is a side note, I would assume that if wife murders said husband, allegedly, supposedly, then that would null and void that. And she wouldn't be entitled to it, but, you know, I don't know. So Eric's share of his masonry business sold for $2 million after his death, according to the complaint. Quote, accordingly, Corrie is entitled to a declaratory judgment that, upon Eric's death, Corry became the proper recipient and sole owner of the proceeds, states the complaint. The proceeds in question are currently on deposit with the court, the suit states. So as for the house, the issue is more complicated since it is not outlined in the prenuptial agreement. Richens claims in the complaint that she has paid the mortgage and made improvements on the house, including adding a pool out of her own pocket, and if she is not entitled to half the value, that she should, at the very least, be entitled to half the price of the increased value of the home in the years since she and Eric purchased the property. The previous owner of that home is Richens Benson and her husband. So the previous owner of that home is Eric's sister, who is now the executor of his estate. I didn't know that that's interesting since paying four hundred thousand dollars for the property in 2013 richens says the price has skyrocketed almost 500 percent to 1.9 million as a result richens argues the estate is unjustly enriching themselves by holding the deed to a property while she pays the mortgage On top of all this, Richens is also seeking various pieces of Eric's personal property being held by the estate that she claims is due to her by marriage or through the prenuptial agreement. Quote, Such money damages include the value of the proceeds, the value of Corey's interest in the family home and personal property, and that portion of the costs and expenses that should have been paid by the estate as a partial owner of the family home, reads the complaint. Therefore... Corey requests that the family home and or the personal property be partitioned and sold at their fair market value, with the proceeds thereof being split 50-50 by and between Corey and the estate, end quote. And then it goes on to talk about how she allegedly supposedly murdered her husband. So she... (sighs) She has been arrested and charged with murdering her husband, poisoning him. I would imagine would have been not a pleasant death, right? Okay. And so that then becomes the issue of, we, you know, in in the United States of America, everyone is innocent until proven guilty. That's not how people are treated, but that is the law. That's what it says. That is what it's supposed to do. So if we are assuming that she is innocent, then I suppose... Her doing this and suing for more money and stuff would be whatever. But Eric's Eric actually went and had this paperwork changed to have Corey completely removed and, made, and had his sister made the executor of his estate cutting Corey out completely. And so, and this is when he was alive and of sound mind, like there's legal jargon that goes with that. So I don't see why anyone would tell her, lawyers would tell her that she has a right to sue the estate for this stuff, innocent or not, because even if she didn't poison him, he wrote her out. He specifically had her removed from all of that and had his sister made the executor of the estate. Does that make sense? So she really isn't entitled to it, whether she murdered her husband or not allegedly, supposedly. Anyway, moving on. So our next article comes from lawandcrime.com, and the title reads, Parents indicted on murder charges for the second time in case where paralyzed daughter melted into family's couch while starving and covered in feces, sores, and maggots. Okay, So I did a podcast about this girl as well, Lacey Fletcher. Um, If you haven't listened to it, go back and listen to it. It is an absolutely heartbreaking story. But here is an update on the shitbag parents, right? So Louisiana parents accused of neglecting their adult daughter to the point that she, quote, melted into a couch, have been indicted on murder charges for the second time, authorities recently announced. Lacey Ellen Fletcher, 36 when she died, is believed to have suffered from nearly complete paralysis, a condition referred to as locked-in syndrome. I have my doubts about that. I am not a medical professional, so do with that what you will. We discussed it in the podcast, but on January 3, 2022, she was found dead on her parents' 1960 style couch at the family's home in Slaughter, Louisiana. The woman was found covered in feces, emaciated, her body riven with ulcers. Riven with ulcers? That's what the article reads, but it was covered in ulcers. A human-sized hole was worn down into the couch where she allegedly sat and relieved herself for several years, according to East and West Feliciana Parish District Attorney Sam D'Aquila. The woman's body slowly rubbed the hole through the upholstery and cushion, authorities said. The hole was filled with feces and urine. The DA's office said there was also feces shoved into the victim's face, chest, and abdomen, and that her hygiene had been neglected to the point that maggots lived in her matted, knotted hair. The floor beneath the couch was reportedly buckling due to the feces and urine that had compiled there, sources close to the case said, according to Baton Rouge-based ABC affiliate WBRZ. So the parish coroner reportedly said the woman had last seen a doctor some two decades ago, 20 years ago. She weighed all of 96 pounds at the time of her death, and she did test positive for COVID-19. Quote, I could not eat for a week and I cried for a week, the parish coroner stated. So starvation, the coroner determined, contributed to the woman's death. Quote, the question on everybody's mind is, how could they be caretakers living in the house with her and have her get in a condition like that? It's cruelty to the infirm. We just cannot let it sit. So months passed before the investigation into Lacey Fletcher's death had been wrapped up, but by the end, the DA was intent on pressing charges. A formal indictment on charges of murder in the second degree was issued against her parents, Sheila and Clay Fletcher, in early of May 22, Law and Crime reported at that time. This case was so horrific, Dakila told WBRZ. The coroner and the sheriff's office initially investigates this case in January, and the condition she was found was just unbelievable. You don't treat anybody or animals like that, end quote. Each of the accused parents had their bond set at $30,000, and they were able to quickly get out of the East Parish Jail, the East Feliciana, I can't pronounce it, I apologize, They were prominent members of the community. Sheila, the mom, resigned as town alderman shortly after her daughter died. But the criminal charges didn't last. On May 8th, the Fletcher's defense attorney, Stephen Moore, filed a motion to quash the indictments against his clients, arguing the DA's office served documents that were different from those filed with the local count or court clerk. I'm sorry. Moore said there were six mostly small but material differences between the court papers. Quote, in sum, the indictment in the record is either a substitute or a different indictment returned by the grand jury. End quote. Moore reportedly wrote in a copy of the defense motion obtained by the paper. One of those amendments, however, which was written by hand, added language from a law regarding cruelty to the infirm. The infirm, meaning someone who is unable to take care of themselves. Okay. So, and that, in, in that addition, Moore said, was an untoward effort to create a new crime. The district attorney seeks to convict the Fletchers of second-degree murder by improperly amending the indictment so the state can attempt to convict by a lesser burden, the defense attorney wrote, and the court agreed. So... The judge tossed the second-degree murder indictments against the surviving Fletchers due to the defective language in those charging documents. It's all that paperwork. you got to be so careful with court paperwork, with any kind of legal documentation. And my children, my loveys. if you have situations going on, this is a complete side note. Documentation. Date, time, where, when, who, what was said. I'm just telling you, it's it's worked for me in the past. But anyway, so... The DA also predicted the process would play out quite a bit quicker now because the defense had previously been apprised of all of the state's information in the case. And it goes on and on again, but basically, <clears throat> it doesn't really matter what they charge them with or whatever. The neglect is beyond anything you any rational human could ever do. I'm just saying that. Ugh, moving on. So our next article comes from phoenixnewtimes.com, and the title reads, How a Phoenix Podcast Host Used TikTok to Advocate for Her Missing Sister. It was May 17, 2001, and Alyssa Turney was missing. It was the 17-year-old's last day of school at Paradise Valley High School in North Phoenix, but she never came home. There was only a note and unanswered questions. For nearly 20 years, Alyssa's younger sister, Sarah Turney, searched for answers, and last week, she got them. On August 20th, Alyssa's stepfather and Sarah's father, Michael Turney, was arrested on a second-degree murder charge related to Alyssa's disappearance. Quote, I'm shaking and I'm crying. We did it, you guys. He's been arrested, Sarah tweeted last week. Never give up hope that you can get justice. It took almost 20 years, but we did it, end quote. Sarah, who was 12 in 2001, was with Michael the day they found Alyssa's normally organized room in disarray, along with a note that read, quote, Dad and Sarah, when you dropped me off at school today, I decided I really am going to California. Sarah, you said you really wanted me gone. Now you have it. Dad, I took $300 from you. That's why I saved my money. End quote. And this wasn't immediately suspicious. Alyssa had an aunt in California and had talked about wanting to go live with her because she didn't get along with Michael, who legally adopted Alyssa after the girls' mother, Barbara, died of cancer nine years prior. Michael, who worked as a deputy sheriff for the Maricopa County Sheriff's Office in the 70s, called police that night anyway and reported Alyssa as a runaway. Immediately, Sarah began looking for her sister. Quote, I started a website for Alyssa like a week or so after she was gone, Sarah said in an interview that took place before Michael Turney's arrest. Quote, so it's been up for a super long time. End quote. The website asked for leads and tips that could help find Alyssa. So in the subsequent years, as the police investigation started to turn cold, law enforcement told Sarah to create a media presence to help keep the case alive. She made Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter accounts with the username Justice for Alyssa. She reached out to the media and true crime enthusiast oh she didn't reach out to me. But anyway, to spread the word and was able to get a good amount of attention on the case. She even spent a year to raise money and put up a billboard along Interstate seventeen near nineteenth Avenue. Sarah started a podcast in September 2019 called Voices for Justice, in which she presented information not commonly known by the public or the true crime community and told the full story surrounding her sister's disappearance based on the information she had. Quote, I was really encouraged by the true crime community to start the podcast, she said. It was kind of like my last-ditch effort to get this case to move forward, end quote. To prepare, Sarah wanted to gather all the information the police had on her sister's disappearance. She went to the Phoenix Police Department with her request for the records and received in return nearly 3,000 pages of publicly released notes and case documents. So, quote, "'Once I got all the case files, I realized that this story has never been told in full. There's so much that nobody ever knew,' Sarah said." I think I went through all 3,000 pages in six weeks. I found so much in the files that I never knew, and I learned so much that I would have never expected to find in there. And then came TikTok. Sarah joined the app to help pass the time during quarantine, but it quickly became much more than that. So she says, quote, I was sitting up late at night worried about the world and needed some type of distraction. So I downloaded the app, she said. I started thinking maybe this is Alyssa's opportunity. She began to advocate for her sister's case on the app. In the short time, Sarah has been on TikTok, the end of April to be exact. She has gained over 10 million likes on her videos. TikTok blew up like crazy, she said. I have like 10,000 to 20,000 followers on my other platforms, but on TikTok, I just hit 800,000 followers. So her posts include videos Michael Turney took of Alyssa before she went missing, clips of interviews with friends and family about Alyssa's disappearance, and information people may not have known before. So skipping through, the article goes on to say that police began to look at Michael Turney in 2008, who said he picked Alyssa up from school the day she disappeared. Michael was arrested in 2008 after police searched his house and found 26 pipe bombs, a manifesto, and hours upon hours of audio recordings and home videos of him stalking Alyssa right up until she disappeared. You know what? Actually, I do remember this case. See, I get these articles. Um, My dear, dear listener and pal on Serial Killing a Podcast fan page on Facebook sends me these articles, but I don't read them in advance because I kind of want to experience them with you guys. But I actually do remember this case. If you want me to cover it in its own podcast, I I would love to do that actually but you know let me know then I'll let the patrons know and have them vote on it so anyway Michael I don't want to say anymore if you guys want me to cover it or not let me know if you're not interested in me covering it then I will finish reading this article in the next Monday Morning Murder in the News if you do want me to cover it I'm going to stop here to be continued with this one So this next article kind of makes me sad on a personal level because I kind of grew up with him being sort of the awkward evil guy in some low-budget movies, right? So this article comes from CNN.com, the entertainment section, and the headline reads, Human Remains Identified as Missing Actor Julian Sands. So British actor Julian Sands, known for his work in shows like 24 and movies like A Room with a View and The Killing Fields, has been found dead after going missing in the San Gabriel Mountains in Southern California in January. Investigators announced Thursday he was 65. Quote, the manner of death is still under investigation pending further test results. The San Bernardino County Sheriff's Department said in a statement, you know, I feel like I say this particular Sheriff's Department name quite often. Anyway, quote, we would like to extend our gratitude to all the volunteers that worked tirelessly to locate Mr. Sands, end quote. The actor had been the subject of an ongoing search in the Mount Baldy area since he failed to return from a hike on January 13. Weather conditions had hindered search efforts in the weeks following his disappearance. Officials announced a renewed effort to locate sands earlier this month. Over 80 search and rescue volunteers deputies, and staff participated in the search efforts in recent days, supported by two helicopters and drone crews as volunteers searched in, quote, remote areas across Mount Baldy, according to officials. So human remains were found in the area where they had been searching for sands last week quote, we continue to hold Julian in our hearts with bright memories of him as a wonderful father, husband, explorer, lover of the natural world and the arts, and as an original and collaborative performer, his family said in a statement to the Guardian at the time. Sands loved hiking, according to his family. Quote, when in L.A., The Mount Baldy Mountain Range was his favorite place. He would go there as often as he could, his brother told the U.K. publication The Craven Herald and Pioneer in January. Julian liked to say, I have never had a holiday, but I do rest occasionally. Well, he's resting now in a place he would have truly approved of. So it says that he appeared in dozens of movies and TV shows during his career. His film credits include movies like Arachnophobia, Leaving Las Vegas. He also appeared in Smallville, the Netflix television series What If, and the Peter Capaldi-led drama Benediction. Quote, the truth is, once you have been around long enough and have some experience, confidence and independence, there is a tremendous letting go of the things that are intrusive in your career. Ambition, narcissism, jealousy, vanity, insecurity, he told The Guardian in a 2018 profile. You can spend a lot of time trying to stay a young actor. It doesn't allow for emotional maturity. It's infantilizing, end quote. So he had a son from a previous marriage, but his current wife. He had two children with her, but I am not seeing a cause of death yet, so we'll have to keep an eye on that. Or I'll keep an eye on it. You know, I understand I'm kind of strange, but I would like to know what happened to him. But anyway, yeah, that's kind of sad. And so yet another update when it comes to the Delphi stuff, right? This comes from newsnationnow.com. The title reads, Delphi Documents. Richard Allen told wife he killed girls. Investigators believe knife was used in the murders. So coming out of Delphi, Indiana. Documents unsealed Wednesday in the 2017 Delphi murders provide new insight into the case against Richard Allen. They also reveal for the first time publicly how investigators believe Abby Williams and Libby German were killed. Allen County Judge Francis Gull assigned to oversee the high-profile case unsealed nearly 120 documents Wednesday. It says you can find the documents here and there's a link, so I will get that link and I will post the link in the notes if you guys want to see those. I'm sure you do. So the documents reveal, among other things, that Alan admitted to his wife during a phone call that he was responsible for killing the teens. And it doesn't say this in the article, but I also listened to some stuff about it on YouTube. And he was on a prison phone with his wife, and it is proudly displayed that phone calls are recorded. I even believe when they pick up the, the phone handle that it tells them it's going to be recorded. So I'm not entirely sure how he's going to explain that or defense against it. I have no idea. But anyway... The state's response to a defense motion to suppress evidence revealed for the first time publicly that investigators believed a knife was used to kill the girls. The document also includes the search warrant and search warrant return. Quote, autopsies of the girls ruled their deaths as homicides and their wounds were caused by sharp object, according to the documents. Investigators also determined that, quote, articles of clothing from the girls were missing from the scene, including a pair of underwear and a sock, end quote. Gross. The search warrant shows investigators were looking for firearms and knives at Allen's home in Delphi, along with knives, electronic devices, clothing, and a specific cell phone. I'm assuming one of the girls' cell phone that filmed him, you know. But anyway, investigators wanted to search the property, including outbuildings, a shed, and Alan's car. So law enforcement recovered numerous items from Alan's property, including boots, multiple knives, and sweatshirts, a Sig Sauer P226 that prosecutors believe link Allen to the case, multiple cell phones, an iPod, hard drive, laptop, and other electronics. Multiple cell phones? Multiple cell phones? A separate document revealed that Allen admitted to the murders on April 3rd of 23 during a phone call with his wife. She ended the call abruptly according to court documents.: quote, "Investigators had the phone call transcribed and the transcription confirms that Richard Allen admits that he committed the murders of Abigail Williams and Liberty German, end quote, The document said. He admits several times within the phone call that he committed the offenses as charged. End quote. I would love to hear that. I wonder if they can release that. I mean, if he admitted it, can they release it? Anyway, Allen's attorneys argued that he's under great physical and mental duress because of his time in captivity and don't believe his admission is reliable. Prosecutors countered, however, that Allen's behavior changed drastically after the April 3rd admission. He hasn't made a single phone call since then and had to undergo a psychiatric evaluation. By April 14th, according to court documents, Allen's strange behavior began to subside and he was eating and sleeping regularly once more. So, as we know, Alan first talked to investigators about the case in 2017 when he told a conservation officer that he'd been on the trail on the day of the murders. That information resurfaced in October of 22 when investigators took a second look at Allen and interviewed him. So he told police that he had guns and knives in his home. He also admitted he had clothing similar to the one worn by the infamous bridge guy in a video. That is one of the key pieces of evidence released in the case. Libby German had recorded the video, investigators said. So I'm wondering if they're seeing, again, if he had Libby's phone. The wife confirmed to police that Allen owned several guns and knives. He also had a blue Carhartt jacket similar to the one worn by, quote, Bridge Guy. Based on statements from Allen and eyewitnesses, police applied for a search warrant. Law enforcement conducted a search of Allen's home on October 13th of 22. An analysis from the Indiana State Police Laboratory determined that a bullet found next to the girls' bodies had been cycled through Allen's gun, although Allen's defense attorneys are contesting that evidence. So that was the end of that article. And another thing that I was listening to, um, on YouTube about this case, that they were saying that another inmate had written a letter on Richard Allen's behalf saying that he's being bullied in prison. He's being told in prison that he should just kill himself, that he should just kill himself and get it over with. And that this bullying is being done in front of the warden and nothing's being done about it. Um, So if you've confessed to killing these two girls and there's evidence that you, you know, the shell casing matches marks that came out of one of your fucking guns and you've admitted it to your wife on the phone and all of these reasons why we are pretty sure he's guilty, allegedly, supposedly, um, I don't really care what they're saying to you in prison. You killed two little girls. You're a waste of space. I don't even care. I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, I guess that's all I have for my children for this Monday morning murder in the news. A lot going on, right? So thank you again to Jessica for helping me find articles because I've been pretty busy doing um, some kind of old school research for the next podcast on an actual serial killer. I kind of missed really getting into the psychological parts of it. You know, that's my favorite part. So thank you, Jessica. And anyone else that wants to send me, it doesn't necessarily have to be murder. I just want like the weird shit. It can be murder, and mayhem, weird shit. I, I like that. Please send me anything you have. I really appreciate it. You can send it to me on Instagram at serial underscore killing, or you can share the link on the Serial Killing, a podcast fan page. I'm very, very active on both sides. Um. Anyway, have a great week, guys. Let's get through it. Yet another week, right? We're in this we're in summer. I know we're all hoping for fall. You people that are enjoying this heat, you just go ahead and keep enjoying the heat. I'm going to be in my air-conditioned house. All right, I love you guys. Bye.